0: Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, today the decision by the Ontario government to axe the child benefit will affect 1,800 kids right here in Hamilton. Also, Best Buy, Staples, and two other retailers are being named in a lawsuit accused of urging customers to pirate TV shows with devices sold in those stores. And we take a look at the social media posts that are haunting candidates in the 2019 federal election. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900CHML... The decision by the Ford government to axe a child benefit that's going to affect about 1,800 kids right here in the Hamilton area is uh, being... Well, Lamb it, and I think justifiably so. Tom Cooper, the director for the Hamilton Roundtable for Poverty Reduction, joins us here in studio to talk about this. Thanks for coming in today. Good to see you again.
1: Hey, Bill. It's good to see you, too. As much as I enjoy your company, it sure sucks to talk about yeah, cuts ever, to children's programs you on Monday come in morning. In with,
0: Why don't you ever <laughs> com, come in with some sort of good news? For, no, I'm just teasing. Uh, you kind of sort of thought this was going to happen because they basically looked at just about everything right now and said, yeah, we're going to chop, 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 chop. But this is
1: uh, this is draconian. It is. It's cruel. It is nonsensical. It doesn't make economic sense, and certainly morally, it's very, very wrong. This is a program that goes to the most vulnerable children in society, and helps them at least escape deep, deep poverty. And to cut this program just doesn't make any sense, Bill.
0: This is called the uh, Transition Child Benefit. Maybe explain to our listeners exactly what that is.
1: Yeah, it's a, it's a program that kind of flies under the radar because not many people, uh, other than those families who are receiving it, know about it. But as we know, in, in Canada, uh, the Canada Child Benefit has been touted as, as one of the most important social programs in a generation. And it, it's done a lot to pull Low income children out of poverty. And, and we know the federal government's talked about that a lot. Unfortunately, not everybody is eligible for the candid child benefit. And there's a few different reasons for that. So if you're a low income uh, parent and you have a new baby, uh, it takes time to get the candid child benefit. You have to apply for it. it it's delivered through the tax system. So usually the following tax year, you'll, mm-hmm. you'll, Uh, Declare your income and then start receiving the Canada Child Benefit afterwards. Um, For low-income families, that could be a year or more of of deep, deep poverty, um, trying to meet the basic needs of, of children. Um, you know, whether it's covering uh, food or or formula or diapers, other clothing to help families with the high costs of rental housing. Um, So this transitional transition child benefit was really created. It was created more than 12 years ago by the McGinty government. Uh, So we're going back a ways, but it was, it was really a stopgap to help those low income families who simply weren't eligible for the Canada Child Benefit yet because either it hadn't kicked in or in some cases, if they're refugee claimants, um, they're not eligible for the Canada Child Benefit. But they're still in poverty. They're still in poverty. And I think you would agree with me, Bill, that if children are in Canada, they should at least have access to basic needs. And uh, basically from uh, what we're hearing The Ford government pulling this away is going to take away that opportunity for 1,800 kids in in Hamilton. Believe it or not, 87% of them are under the age of three. And um, so we're talking infants here, uh, toddlers, and um, they're going to lose this. Absolutely critical benefit. Now,
0: and we should—that's—that's a, that's a staggering number, by the way. The eighty-seven percent. We're talking about baby. So this is basically, you know, diapers, formula, things of that nature.
1: Absolutely, absolutely, and it goes—it goes to help parents um, because we know there's extraordinary costs after having a baby. Uh, and if you're a low income, uh, low income family trying to make ends meet, either on social assistance or, or maybe you're working and just not getting enough hours at your job, you could apply. You could get this transition child benefit, and and so uh, most of the people in Hamilton who are receiving the transition benefit are Canadian residents. Uh, they're they're just people who've landed in a bad situation. About forty percent though are are refugee claimants uh, living in Hamilton, and and. They do need some support for their kids. You know, they've left terrible situations, and uh, and those children shouldn't have to suffer any longer.
0: It's it's temporary. It's not a lifetime thing. No. Uh, you know, I'm I just trying to dispel some of the myths that are always out there. That you know, oh, we can't afford to pay the you know, go go get a job. Most of them have jobs. Yeah, uh, they're working. They're just not making enough money right now because they're new to this country, uh, and and getting new you know used to this this environment, this society, this workforce, and things of this nature. And we're talking about. If I read this correctly, Tom, a maximum of two
1: hundred and thirty dollars. Yeah, it's two hundred and thirty dollars a month, so it's it's much less than the Canada Child Benefit uh, that that families receive. But uh, it, it's important. It's important to to help cover those those essential costs of of daily living, um, ensuring that uh, parents can purchase formula or diapers or, or ensure there's a roof over the family's head. Uh, by cutting this program, the provincial government is, is relegating these families to hunger relegating them to homelessness and, and deep deep despair and and so this is absolutely cruel. Um, it's it doesn't make economic sense it doesn't make sense on any sort of uh, characteristic you'd you'd want to assign to a civilized sa- civilization
0: I'm trying to connect the dots here too you and I were just talking before we started the segment what would galls me about that Well the, the fact that they're doing it galls me but what exacerbates that I guess, is a, a, a here's a companion story today that the the government the Ford government finally announced this this huge deficit that they've been co- complaining about that you know the wind government was half of what they said it was yeah and now the numbers prove that yeah so a lot of these draconian cuts that they've announced probably aren't even necessary
1: they're not necessary and and we've heard that already uh, there there's been some people talking about this for a while Michael Mendelson from uh, from the Maytree Foundation uh, I think. Uh, costed this program out at 67 million dollars right across Ontario it's 1.9 million uh, here in Hamilton Um, but it's good value for money because you're preventing a lot of other social programs by ensuring families can afford rent can afford food Um, by sending families into homelessness and and that deep spiral into poverty it's going to cost society much much more down the line well,
0: there's another element to this, too, and this is, this is again, this is downloading, really. It is. When, when a, a provincial government da- decides to cancel a program, essentially they're throwing it back in the city and saying, if you guys want to pick it up, go ahead. Yeah. So there, there's going to be immense pressure on Hamilton City Council right now to say, what can you guys do about this? And I know there's some good-meaning people on that council
1: they are going to try. Yep. But that's, that's a huge burden on Hamilton taxpayers. It, it is a huge burden, and, and you're absolutely right. It is downloading. It's just like we saw um, 20 years ago by the provincial government, a downloading of social services, uh, of these human services that uh, simply municipalities can't afford. And and it's unfortunate. Um, Hamilton, Hamiltonians are incredibly generous, and we always step up when there's food drives uh, for food banks in, in Hamilton – uh, you know, we we go to the max and, and we try to help out, and so does our city council when they can. Um, there's going to be a lot of pressures on city council over the next year or so, as as more and more uh, revelations from the provincial budget uh, that was passed in the spring come down. Um, but I think this really has to top the list. Uh, I, I I said it earlier today. I I think this is probably the cruelest position the provincial government has taken yet, and they've done some pretty silly things. Um, but to cut program, cut this funding uh, for the youngest, most vulnerable children in society doesn't make any sense by any level. So what do
0: we do? I mean, they've said this is going to happen. I mean, they they kind of talked around this, and now they say it's going to happen. I guess at the end of October, that's yep. that's the drop dead date for this. Yeah. Uh, they have they've walked back on a few things right now. Uh, you know, the the autism program comes to mind. They, they still haven't fixed it, but I mean, yep. it wasn't as bad as it was initially when they made that initial announcement. Yep. Uh, and now they've even made some noises about some of the other programs. Stephen Lecce, the education minister, saying, "Well, maybe we'll talk about class sizes now because he's getting a lot of pushback." What are, what are the chances of the government rethinking this?
1: I think they have to. It it doesn't make any sense to move forward with it. It's going to cost uh, society much more. It's going to cost communities for the poor families impacted. It's it's going to be absolutely horrendous. Um, so I think we need to wrap our heads around what this policy is meant uh, to achieve, and and there's not much there because it is it is right now good value for its money. Um, it provides an an opportunity to transition families uh, to the Canada Child Benefit, and and without it, it, it there's simply going to be uh, a lot of hardship caused. So. I think the provincial government needs to take a second look, and and it's not just Hamilton affected. Yes, we have eighteen hundred kids here who are who are going to be hit hard, and their families are going to be hit hard by it. Um, but there's tens of thousands of children right across the province who are who are going to suffer the same fate if this provincial government moves forward with this plan. You know, I, I hate to say it, but you know, we have a uh, an administration south of the border in the United States. Um, the Trump administration locks up refugee children at their southern border. Our our provincial government has taken a much more s- subtle approach. Um, they're not locking kids, kids up, uh, but they are depriving them of their basic needs. And that is just as bad. Well, I was going to ask you about that.
0: I mean, let's, you know, again, connect the dots here. I mean, there, there's, seems to be, sadly, a, a, an anti-immigration, anti-refugee uh, mode that seems to be sweeping across North America. And yeah, it's fueled by Trump, to be sure, but, I mean, it's it's up here, too. Let's not kid ourselves. You know, we can't look down there and say, ha, oh, those those silly people, you know, thank God it isn't happening here. It is happening here. But as you say, it's, it's a much different way by cutting off funding for people like this. And uh, what they need to do, I think, is is remind the, ourselves about exactly what predicament these people are in, why mm-hmm. they're here in the first place, and, and the fact that, most of them, after a helping hand, get back on their feet. They're doing fine, and they're, and they're contributing to society. They open businesses, they hire people, yep. uh, and and that's working. This is this is a stopgap measure. This is not, hey, here's two hundred and thirty bucks for life. That doesn't happen.
1: No, exactly, and it, it is a temporary program. And, and most most families don't need it for very long. But during the time they do need it, it it's going to help feed their kids. Uh, keep them housed, uh, and ensure the children can can get clothing and, and diapers. Um, so it doesn't make any sense to cut this program because we know, as we've said, the costs are going to be much, much higher down the line if if we have to deal with homelessness, if we have to deal with extreme hunger and the health problems that's going to cause kids. Uh, there's There's going to be huge problems. This particular program, I mean,
0: the, the numbers you're talking about here on an annual basis. I mean, eliminating that program is probably going to impact your taxes by, by what you got to get maybe another two cents off your provincial tax. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'm so, I'm serious. It's, it's minuscule. It
1: is. It is. Miniscule. It really is. Yeah, and 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 maybe there's an opportunity for the federal government to come in uh, because a certain percentage of the. Uh, families receiving the benefits, yes, are our, our, our newcomers to Canada, the refugee claimants, um, but most of the families involved in this program are Canadian residents, and, and they're just people who've landed in a bad situation. They're not able to access the national uh, or provincial child benefit programs, and, and so this is a transitional program that's that's really intended to stop kids from going hungry, to stop their families from losing their housing. And 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 so there must be a concerted effort, I think, from all levels of government to try to fix this problem.
0: And again, I'm glad you were able to come in and talk about this because I want people to be sure and, and clear as, as to what this is. Uh, this is not, hey, this here's another program for you on top of all the other ones that are available there for, to help people out. This is because the, they don't qualify for anything else. Yep, that's right. So they got nothing. That's right. Nada. Uh, that's so right. This, the government stepped in and said, okay, we'll give you some part-time assistance. There's some, you know, stopgap measures. I, I, don't, I don't understand the rationale behind this, really, why why this government would do this. And all this mantra about we're going to save you money. I mean, what they're doing is, is, is essentially downloading. I know we just mentioned city council here. I know John Tory in Toronto is upset about this. Yep. I've heard Jim Watson in Ottawa. I mean, everybody's going to be impacted by this because the pressure is going to be on municipalities to step up here. Exactly. And and that's problematic for an awful lot of people. Not that they don't want to, yep. but I mean, they've got their own challenges already. I mean, you talked about 20 years ago. I can remember one instance where there was a program that the provincial government cut off, which essentially uh, was providing money for people on ODSP to get things like wheelchairs and, and, and you know, aids like that, you know, and, and how can you possibly do something like that,
1: really? Yeah, especially as you as you referenced, Bill, when we've just found out over the last few days that the deficit is not nearly as high as, as was predicted um, several months ago, um, you know, but even if it were, this would still be a good value for the cost program. And it's been up and running for for more than 12 years Well, so with the
0: living wage program,
1: Tom, and they just knocked that arbitrarily too. Exactly, but this is a program that's been working. It's been helping uh, to transition people. We've seen a reduction in child poverty in this country. You know, look at the numbers. Uh, The stats speak for themselves. Child poverty has been reducing because of programs like this in place. If we get rid of it, Those numbers are going to spike back up again. And and that's not the type of society we want here in Ontario, here in Canada. So uh, we, I
0: guess, are, are invoking people right now to get in touch with their MPP to talk about this. Sadly, it's unfortunate that they're not going back to work until after the federal election, so they're not going <laughs> to yeah. be able to do much about this right now. No. But the government does react to public pressure. I mean, we've seen that happen. All governments do, but this one will walk back on some stuff, and, and especially because, I mean, this is, this is not something they promised they were going to do anyway. This is not a campaign promise. No.
1: No, it's it's not. This is,
0: this is a bean counter going over there and say, you know what? If you nix that, that's a, that'll save a couple of pennies too.
1: Exactly, and we have a federal election going on, so I th- I think there's a lot of focus on on that. But it's important to engage federal candidates too about about the need to reduce child poverty, uh, but also what role can our municipality play, even if it's a short term role, um, to ensure that these families are protected and these kids are protected. There's going to be a legal action taken on on this the cancellation of the transition child benefit uh, from the Income Security Advocacy, Advocacy Center. We don't know when that's getting started. Uh, there may be an injunction to try to stop it. But in the meantime, um, I think it's, it's imperative that our city council step up. And I know uh, Councillor Sam Marula has talked about yeah. some things that the city can do in the short term. I, I certainly hope that's going to happen and, and we can protect the most very vulnerable people, the little children. Tom Cooper. Tom, thanks for coming in today. Thanks, Bill. We'll stay on top of this for everybody who's involved in this.
0: You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show Podcast on 900 CHML. Uh, Fascinating story here. Uh, Four retailers have been named in a lawsuit launched by Super Channel, uh, accusing them of uh, selling pirate TV uh, paraphernalia so that you and I can get free TV instead of paying for it. Joining us to talk with us is uh, Adam Oldfield. Of course, Adam hosts uh, Tech Talk with us on uh, Friday mornings at eleven thirty here on the Bill Keller Show. He is the president and CEO of FPM and FPM Three Marketing. How are you doing this morning, Adam? I'm doing very well, Bill. You do well. Listen, first of all, what are these devices, and how can I get one? No, I mean, <laughs> uh, uh, all right, forget forget the last part. What 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 is what's the 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 bone of contention here?
2: The bone of contention simply is, as we've talked many times on Tech Talk, is, you know, these Android boxes that are available that you can purchase, and they were being sold out of people's basements at one point, and it allows access through an Internet provider to be able to reach out to all sorts of options of programming, whether it's television programming or whether it's movies that are recently released, and you know, they're, they're, the argument in this legal case that's come up against Best Buy and Staples and and, and all these other, uh, I think Canada Computers, is that they are illegally selling the hardware associated with the uh, cable cutting. And I think this is really interesting when well, you know understanding the case. It made me laugh a little bit, Bill, only because. You know we we see so many different products available on the market that is capable of doing doing the streaming so the challenge and this is the challenge is of course streaming is not illegal it is not illegal and i'm going to say that very clearly and again it is not illegal to stream programming regardless of the fact that it was not paid for it is not illegal in Canada to have a streaming video on your TV. And so this is a real challenge. The CRTC's got some serious issues because they can't regulate it. They can only protect it if it's downloaded.
0: That's where it becomes a problem. Yeah, but who downloads? I, I, I don't I, even I, know what downloading is. I mean, <coughs> <laughs> I, I so mean, if you're school. watching TV, if you want to watch uh, Peaky Blinders, which I think is coming back on uh, next week... Uh, you're streaming it you're not downloading it and and but because of that these people i mean th- th- this is this is seemingly ridiculous because like you say this has already been tested and and they've already ruled on this and so i'm sorry they're not really doing anything wrong
2: well that's right so sorry, you're not making to-
0: money from them but too bad so sad
2: well, and the other challenge is, where are they streaming it from? And that's the problem the CRTC has. And what Super Channel, who I believe is filing the suit against them, and, and I believe supported by Bell and, and Shaw, is the fact that it is streaming. And they want to be able to put up restrictions on websites that are, are streaming this, this, this material. Very similar to back in the 90s, uh, late 90s, early 2000s, when Napster had a server and it was downloading music. Well, that's different than today, where you're streaming and and the big comp uh, the element is it is illegal to have and own a product and that's the big difference that I think really is the differential between streaming. No one actually owns the streaming service. You don't. You can't technically uh, hold it or put it on a memory device or otherwise. Now going back to your first question, I didn't answer it, Bill. What, you know what are these devices? Well. Amazon is what if we're going to take this lawsuit up a level, Amazon Fire Stick is the product we're referring to. It's available online. It's $34. And with that Amazon Fire Stick, you can be able to plug it in and be able to access Amazon Prime. You'll be able to get Netflix. You'll be able to get Roku. And you'll be able to get some of the third party streaming servers that are available that you don't have to pay for. So I think it's quite simple. This is not a Best Buy problem or a Staples problem. And where they're really putting the argument in is is if you talk to some of the sales reps on the floor, they're kind of using very loose language, which is probably the detrimental issue. They're saying to customers, hi, Bill, thanks for coming. Are you looking to cut your cable? I've got a product right here. And when you load it, it lets you stream all the TV and all the programs you want, and it doesn't cost you anything no more cable bills no more and they're absolutely right Because there is no cable bill if you sign up with Amazon Prime or you sign up with Netflix or the Disney Plus channel. I think what we have here is a real desperate struggle from the cable companies, and and, and Super Channel particularly, to try and control this this situation. I think they could do it a lot better if they offset their costs and made it more affordable.
0: I think that might be a solution. Let me ask you, though, from a, a technical standpoint, though, what Super Channel is complaining about here? Is, is basically they're not paying for the service. They, they, in other words, they're getting it because of the technology that's available. Uh, and by that standard, am I not also ticking them off when I turn on my Roku and watch something there?
2: Well, absolutely. And I think the bigger issue on Super Channel and Shaw is that, you know, the subscribing networks that are offering it through cable, they pay a fee for it. When you're using these services through an Amazon Fire Stick or or other, uh, uh, you know, I believe Chrome's got one and and so forth. All these Android streaming systems have the ability to copy or take, you know, very simple CBC programming. uh, uh, We're talking CTV networking. All our local channels are also available. Now, I understand where Channel is getting upset by that because they're looking at it as those subscribers that are streaming our programming is not allowed. We are not getting a residual or a revenue from that. I kind of look at it as this might be a good thing for them. They're about advertising. If you're going to be streaming your video or your, your uh, programming to multiple people using Android servers, you might find value in that. The argument, and I'm kind of battling with myself here on their behalf, is the fact that if I was super channel, my argument would be, I need to know how many people are viewing because that's how I measure my advertising fees for advertisers. It's great if these Amazon fire sticks are in every home, but if I'm not able to measure and be able to calculate how many of them are watching my programming, I can't be able to do the proper uh, stats and measurement to be able to, to price it out for advertisers. So it's, I can see the, the give and take. My solution to them would be you need to figure out a very simple way to put a trigger on it that you can track it and use this as an opportunity to help leverage more people to watch your streaming for free. Yeah, but they don't I mean, want to do
0: that. They want to block it.
2: They want to block it because they want to be able to make easy revenue, Bill. That's what it's coming down to. This is not a matter of, you know, like I, I just gave that example. This is not something that I think Super Channel is looking at it and going, this is available for everybody to be able to watch for free. What they want to do is say, we want to block every, these, by the way, these servers are in Korea. These servers are in Taiwan. They're over in different countries, which is very difficult to regulate. And what would happen is the CRTC would need to call all of the internet providers. There's Bell, Shaw, uh, Rogers, all of them, and say, anything out of Taiwan, out of Korea, please restrict. Well, now you've just completely limited the free source of connecting globally, and you can imagine – how that would impact canada if we started restricting access to any kind of websites outside of our own country
0: well and this reminds me of what was it about 10 15 years ago i guess uh when these same canadian cable companies uh we asking and petitioning the crtc to block u.s signals at the border saying look at this people that are you know because that was the era of satellite television everybody was getting the satellites or they were getting the illegal satellite dishes uh, and and watching all this stuff for free, quote unquote, and they said, "All right, we want the government to step in and do something about it." But this is this is 2019, Adam. Aren't these guys like you know a day late and a dollar short on this? I mean, more and more people, especially millennials, are streaming now anyway, and they're not using cable, and this is how they're doing it.
2: Absolutely. And I think this is a big challenge. And this is the limitation when we talk about there only being so many options in Canada. I mean, one of the arguments you don't hear about this in the States is this problem. You're not hearing about this at the FTC. You're not hearing about, you know, AT&T going on about this. What they're doing is they're leveraging it even more. In fact, they've embraced it. If you take a look at the networks in the South versus what we're doing in Canada, we're really trying to hang on to the old school style of how we need to do business. And that's not a good business model. This is I'm now speaking with my economic small business hat. We need to open this market up a little bit to be more competitive. And what you've done now is you've created this isolated market where these uh, these cable providers just keep screaming to their governing body, the CRTC, to say, "Come on, quit making our money get smaller." Instead of saying we need to be innovative to come up with new business models that are more appetizing to consumers. Why are consumers going online to stream? because it's accessible, it's affordable. They can't, they don't want to continue to pay $150 or $300 for their cable. If they can do it for $35 and be able to get the access to this networking, then they're going to want to go that path. So this becomes a really challenging part, not on the consumer to be uh, uh, responsible for it, not on Best Buy and Staples for selling the equipment, giving access. It becomes the responsibility of Super Channel and all of these cable companies to start thinking about how can they build a better business model that works for the consumer. It's as, as simple as that.
0: These are the same people, by the way. I, I mean, this is super channel, but I mean, the cable networks and cable companies are, are, are being complaining about this. They, so they're on side with this thing as well. Uh, they're the same ones that complain about 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 you know cell phone rates here in this country. You, know, you can't let Verizon in. You can't let anybody else in because it'll kill our business. No, it won't. It'll make you smarter. Because it'll that's make right. you have to be competitive, uh, and and that's why we have some of the highest cell phone rates in in the world, and and our cable rates, Well, we you know we've had that discussion on Tech Talk many times about how we're paying way more than m- many other places are because we don't allow competition we don't
2: we don't invite competition we don't allow and that's the limitation of innovation innovation is going to be struggled and strangled if you don't have competition and this is a pure case of that And, and this is a problem that i believe and i'm glad it's coming up i'm glad it's raised because right now if you really look at it bill what canadian programming what canadian network exists in the near future that's going to be solely owned by canada that is a streaming server a streaming service we don't have one. We see Disney jumped on the bandwagon. Disney didn't cry. Disney didn't go out there and go, "Hey guys, we own Marvel. We own all of the Toy Stories and all of the all of these wonderful." They didn't complain. What they did was they said, "We got to jump into this. We need to be a part of the package." Why isn't Canada capable of creating a network capable of being able to compete in that market? We have phenomenal talent, excellent uh, 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 individuals that can that can act. We have the resources to create some of the ba- programming that's available out there but we don't have for some reason the ability to create our own streaming network in Canada at an affordable price that blows my mind that is the limitation and this just gets me fired up as a small business owner at how lacking our 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 innovative economic engine is in this country that we don't have that same sort of resources available to us so canada needs to step up their game and i think that there needs to be a resource capable of being able to offer a streaming service that could compete in the same ballpark as these streaming servers and stop trying to go after our retail outlets which are struggling as it is against amazon claiming they're killing their business
0: it's, there's a bit of a double standard here, though, isn't there? I mean this is super channel, but I mean, as you mentioned, the ca- the, the networks are the same way. They all, all of them, even though they don't have the, the same company like a Disney does or, or an, an Amazon, uh, Global, CTV, CBC, all provide streaming services on their web pages because they know that that's where a lot of people are going to watch the, their product, whether it's whether it's entertainment or news or whatever the case might be. So they already know this and they're making the accommodation for it. Then on the other side, they're turning around and saying, yeah, but we don't want you selling the devices to people so they can do it
2: right exactly it's a, it's a bit of a talking out of both sides of your mouth <laughs> so i think this is the part where uh they haven't really figured out the business model yet you know I, like i said look at netflix how it's innovated i mean the u.s has been able to take uh, a blockbuster which was a multi billion dollar operation to disappear because it didn't innovate you take a netflix which was nothing but a box on the side of a variety store where you could dispense a dvd or dhs movie and it turned it into a streaming powerhouse and where are we in that market so I can see these cable networks are in one breath saying please stop stealing our streaming on the other breath I'm looking at it as why are you not seeing the opportunity Think about all the Canadians in the marketing you could leverage with that. Yes, you've got it through your own website and otherwise, but where is that collaborative effort of the Canadian streaming channel with all of our Canadian networks partnered in it, whether it's CHUM, CTV, uh, uh, across the uh, CBC, all of them, buy the Canadian streaming channel, and you can now get access to thousands of Canadian networks across the country. Where is this? I don't get it. Why are they not working together trying to find that versus individually trying to market it? And they could really create a a powerhouse at $9.99 a month and every Canadian could have access to this of all the local TV programming in the country. We're, I don't understand. Does that not make sense to you, Bill, that that's a perfect business model? We would pay it. It's affordable, sure. and we get local news. It makes sense.
0: Well, the, yeah, and, and besides, there's another element here that needs to be, I think, underscored here. Uh, what these stores are doing is not illegal. I mean, the, the, this is not, hey, I know a guy, you know, he sells these things out of his garage. <laughs> this is. Th- these that's are legitimate right. products that are for sale in, in you know, on the retail market. Uh, and, and, you know, if the store, the, the clerks or the representatives of the store are saying, well, here's how you do it, well, that's 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 the kind of information I'd want if I'm going to buy something like this. I mean, uh, yeah, they're asking basically to to have these guys step in and say, look, at I know this is legal now, but make it illegal because it's hurting our, our, our bottom line. As you say, adopt with the times, guys. I mean, come on. It's the 21st century.
2: That's right. This is, what, this is why I, I could almost go in. I'm not even a lawyer. I could represent them easily in this degree because I know there's nothing really to defend. It's a hardware product. And truthfully, if it's going to come down to it, the one they're going to be needing to go after is Amazon directly. I mean, that is or even you and I were speaking about that on Tech Talk the other day about your television with the Roku device built into the TV. It's got the ability to to download and access this information, and to be able to stream some of these local programming systems. So I guess the argument isn't Best Buy's the problem. The issue is, are you gonna? They need to tackle Amazon's. They need to tackle uh, Samsung's, LG's, all of these television networks because they're all coming pre-built in to our TVs that we're purchasing. So is it Best Buy's issue that they're out there talking about the benefits of what the features are? No, not at all. They're not lying. And I think the issue is we don't like what you're saying, not that it's illegal what you're saying, if you know what I mean. So it makes, two, it makes perfect sense that they're trying and scrambling as much as they can to create a solution to the problem that doesn't really exist.
0: Well, and listen, we're talking on behalf of the consumers, and I understand there's another side of the argument, and that's the networks themselves are going to say, look, this this is how we stay in business. Uh, and and I get that, but there's there's got to be some middle ground, I would think. Here, I, I, I'm going to track this story because I'm going to be really interested to see just how far this actually goes, uh, and whether there's they think there's any water to the arguments. Because uh, in the past, of course, they, there have been situations like this that have come up in the, you know, and and the, somebody's going to have to play you know King Solomon here and try to find a, a way that's going to be equitable for both sides.
2: Right. And, and I think truthfully, they're neat. they. I don't know if they're going to be in that game park. And if you've noticed that as I'm reading it, they're just trying to bring awareness. I think what the goals are from the cable networks and Shaw's and otherwise is that they're just trying to bring awareness to everyone to say, please understand what you're doing is hurting the cable network business. It's It's really struggling and making a bit of a dent in our bottom line. And I think as consumers, we're all sitting there going, I want to feel sorry for you. I really do, but at the end of the day, we paid and continue to pay a premium to all of our cable services, and I'm really struggling on feeling the tears rolling down your face from your multiple profits into a situation that you haven't been able to innovate. So the the plea from the lawsuit that's coming out is really a bit of a you know, can you please all stop, consumers? It's hurting our shareholders' profit margins. Uh, I don't know. I don't think that's a I don't think that's a good tactic to take.
0: Adam Oldfield, uh, as always, Adam. Thanks so much for the time today. Thank you, Bill. You know, there's a little part of me that wouldn't mind seeing this thing actually go to court, uh, so we can hear both sides of this argument here, because I, kn- I know there's a side of uh, you know the other, the corporate side of this too. And uh, look, at, I'm in the I'm in the business, not the television business, but you know we're in that kind of a business, and I understand that all of a sudden, if you know this this idea, about, while well, your bottom line is going to be adversely affected. Uh, there's a lot of things that you know adversely affecting the bottom line right now, but when that starts to happen on a pretty regular basis, well, people start losing their jobs, and that's something that we need to be concerned about as well. Anyway, uh, we'll see. We'll follow this story and just see how where it develops and uh, and who's going to be responding to this and how far this is going to go if in fact it does go to court. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. We're going to get into uh, what's going on on the political scene here on the national level. Of course, the election is on. And what has become a, almost a regular feature of every election now is local candidates uh, getting chastised for some of the comments they've made in social media in the past. Uh, we've said on this program before that, look, at if you ever want to find out what your past is like, just run for public office because somebody will actually discover it for you and, and tell you the good, the bad, and the ugly of it, usually the bad and the ugly. Uh, Party leaders have been asking questions right now about social media posts. A couple of Conservatives were in hot water, and uh, uh, Conservative leader Andrew Scheer spent an inordinate amount of time, I guess so, this past weekend, uh, trying to talk about uh, what his, uh, two of his, anyway, his candidates were saying. And plus, of course... Uh, Sheer himself has been on the hot seat uh, for some of the comments he's made in the past, with the resurfacing of uh, some old speeches that he's made. Joining us to talk about this uh, natural phenomenon in politics, I guess, is a good friend Peter Grave, professor of political science at McMaster University. Good morning, Peter. How are you doing today? Great, thanks. Uh, this is this has become the new normal now, hasn't it? Uh, you know, so and so runs for office; they're going to be the local candidate for whichever public party it is, and uh, invariably uh, they start digging into the past. And boy, they usually have to dig too far to find out some dirt on them.
3: Yeah, that's certainly the case. I mean, I think we live our lives much more publicly, perhaps, than we did in the past. Uh, Many more things that we say are documented, and so, um, yeah, it's not too hard uh, to find in some cases things that really go beyond uh, what we would deem uh, sort of acceptable discourse in this day and age, you know, sort of a way of talking about politics that would ensure that all citizens felt welcome to, to participate
0: is it fair to to be you know to bring up the past like that i mean you know, cuz you hear the justification for this peter like come on we were all young we all make mistakes we all have probably said some things that we probably regret at some point in the future
3: yeah and um, that's all true i mean i think i think there's um a complexity of how people feel about these things i mean we do uh on the one hand have a society which is now really kind of zero tolerance for Uh, you know, sexism and racism, but uh, there's also a sense in which we understand that people can change and uh, uh, people may hold views in certain periods and come to renounce them later. Uh, But in the time of politics, uh, it's hardly time to talk about that in a way. It's, uh, you know, parties don't want to spend two or three days talking about, uh, you know, whether someone has changed their views uh, and so forth. And so uh, there's a real temptation to just say, uh, let's, you know, get rid of the the candidates and move on.
0: Which they have had done, I had to do rather, I guess, in extreme examples. Uh, actually, Shear's comments uh, this past weekend, Peter, I found interesting. Uh, he said he wouldn't boot anybody out for making what some people are considering to be racist or homophobic comments, as long as they apologize for them. Is is that fair?
3: Well, I mean, again, I think, uh, I mean, particularly for a party that has a fairly strong base uh, among Christians, uh, I mean, there's a kind of religious base that is quite. Uh, you know, familiar and uh, interested in the idea of kind of personal redemption and change. Um, But the question is, of course, like, what counts for that? (laughs) How far does one have to go? Um, You know, it's, uh, I suspect, ultimately, Canadians do feel that we have to understand these things on a case-by-case basis, and you have to understand how people change their views over time or made amends and so on um but in this instance uh you know it seems like uh, some speech writers or you know hacks in the party office put out uh, a statement saying this person apologizes and somehow uh, we're meant to judge that that then makes it okay that they said really horrible things publicly uh so i mean i think you know ultimately canadians probably do want uh, a way of thinking about how people could uh, apologize but i'm not sure they're going to accept uh, this idea that uh, you know, that counts. It's a bit like, you know, if if you're told, if you tell a kid they have to apologize to another kid or they won't get their dessert, uh, they'll probably apologize, but you wonder about the sincerity of it.
0: Well, that's yeah, that's the thing. Maybe it's the skeptic of me. I don't know, Peter, but when you see these and they say, oh, come on, it was something that was 10 years ago, and, and I don't think that way anymore, so I apologize if I've offended anybody. That that seems to be almost the theme when, when the that apology uh, comes forward on this. But, you know, if they're truly contrite about it, why did they wait until it was exposed before they apologized?
3: Yes, and I mean, you know, generally, how do we weigh apologies, right? We try to figure out the sincerity of them. We we try to see whether the person really acknowledges a potential harm or the the real harm that they've given. Uh, we you know see whether they really articulate the value that they have transgressed with that. Uh, we see if they tried to make amends? Uh, you know, there's a variety of different ways that we assess where someone is uh, sincere in their apology. So simply saying that, well, look, they put out a press release saying <laughs> they're sorry they said that maybe uh, isn't, you know, that likely to convince us. Uh, I mean, we had last time in uh, the Hamilton area, of course, we had Alex Johnstone
0: That's right, yeah.
3: uh, caught up in uh, a question of making somewhat uh, flippant comments about uh, a concentration camp. And, uh, you know, again, that was a sort of instructive example of someone who, who wasn't forced to step down, but, you know, then did take it upon herself to uh, undergo a fair bit of education and to, you know, visit and make, you know, really understand why she had done something wrong and being so flippant. You know, that's a case where you can probably say, well, yeah, well, the apology is probably probably genuine (laughs) because, you know, she did a lot to make sense of what was the problem and learn from it. But in most of these cases, it seems really it's not even clear that they even wrote the apology or whether it was written for them. And in that context, uh, we should ask questions, I think, a bit about the leadership of political parties. You know, to what extent are they really trying to keep some of these things out of politics by their choices of candidates and by imposing consequences on candidates have spoken that way, and how much are they really just looking, you know, as you point out, as a way to make things go away uh, by uh, issuing apologies, which may be of the nature of sorry, not sorry.
0: I, I did a little counting after I saw Mr. Shear's stories in the comments this weekend, and this just going back to the last election four years ago. Five conservative candidates uh, either were kicked out or, or had to resign before the election. Four liberal candidates and two NDP candidates either resigned or were booted out uh, for the nefarious past comments. Alex Johnson, of course, as you mentioned, uh, was was not kicked out. I mean, she you know did a mea culpa and, and as you say, tried to, to better herself and educate herself. And there was a handful of others uh, from all three parties that, that were in similar circumstances that apologized and didn't actually have to resign. But it, it seems to be a growing problem, though, Peter.
3: Well, yeah, I don't know if the problem's growing or whether, ultimately, our our social media histories are getting longer and the people uh, who are trying to dig this stuff up are getting more effective at it. Um, Yeah, I mean, it remains to be seen how many more of these cases are brought out. And I presume part of uh, Mr. Scheer's uh, decision to, you know, make up a new rule this weekend was that he feared that the Liberals were going to be doing this repeatedly through the whole campaign whenever he campaigned with particular candidates. And so... I think it's a way of trying to head it off uh, from his point of view. Uh, uh, It remains to be seen whether uh, that's accepted or where the media ask him the questions each time to say, well, how are you applying your rule? And does this count as an apology and so forth? But yeah, maybe becoming more, uh, maybe becoming more common simply because we have, uh, in a sense, when we post on social media, we create potential dirt about ourselves. (laughs) (laughs) So, uh, you know, we now have thousands of tweets behind us in some cases and, Ten years on Facebook. Uh, you know, some people probably have a MySpace account hanging around somewhere in their past. Uh, and so, uh, you know, there's a lot. There's a lot to go to, go through. So, on the one hand, I think the people who are vetting candidates, uh, you know, uh, have a harder time just having to work through the whole mass of that. I mean, you have to think that for for parties, they're doing probably four hundred to seven hundred of these vettings in a year, uh, because they're you know they vet at the stage where people announce they're going to run for a, a nomination. And so that's that's a lot of. Uh, mundane junk that you have to sift through, uh, perhaps to find some kind of comment. And even there, I mean, maybe that people have erased them. But back in the day, someone took a screen capture and decided to, to se- uh, sell that, uh, not sell that, to send it to the media or to an opposition party.
0: That's that's really the subtext here, isn't it? It's, it's the vetting system that the candidate, the parties have to do. Uh, and, and you're right. I mean, I understand that. If you know, if an individual wants to run as, as that representative for that political party, uh, they they to a, se- a certain extent have to kind of rely on, the, on the, the integrity of the individual to say, hey, did you guys do anything silly when you were younger? Did you write anything to join some club that is going to you know look bad or something? Uh, you know, Sometimes you just forget about it. I mean, because like you say, of the hundreds of thousands of tweets that you did you know, 10 years ago or whatever the case might be, you might have forgotten about that one, but somebody else didn't. So you, you really have to rely on that, because you can't expect the party to do all that digging, can you?
3: Well, I mean, I guess... <laughs> they, uh, do, they do and it. And,
0: and, they do it for the opposition. Uh, I guess they want to uh, find some dirt on them.
3: Yeah, and some people want to run, and so maybe they're less forthcoming about their second or third Facebook account. Yeah, <laughs> you know that sort of that sort of uh, you know slips through. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, vetting is important, uh, and there are times when I you know when I see these uh, things that are put out, uh, and it really becomes centered on the candidates, and uh, you know, thinking about some more recent events in Hamilton, I wonder how much too we might actually ask more of our political leaders when these things come up to actually just state really clearly the the range of what they consider acceptable and unacceptable uh because often obviously the leaders don't actually want to get uh, uh brought in to discuss uh, the particulars of some unfortunate you know post on social media but in some ways by saying oh that's unacceptable they have to go uh they don't really articulate a, a broader set of values for a political community to say we can't talk this way and here's why we can't talk this way because it means that you know, these people don't feel like they can participate fully in our political life. And it's, you know, and it's an affront to our dear, idea of being a democratic citizenship, that we all participate on a basis of equality. You know, it would be nice if we had our leaders, I think, doing that a bit more, rather than simply uh, you know, trying to make things go away and not actually enunciating the principles that allow us to have you know, good debates good discussions and, and free and fair elections.
0: And I guess we're all guilty of that, because uh, nonetheless, even though the, you know they'll talk about integrity and, no, we're going to go high, we're not going to go into the mud, uh, they all do it. I mean, they, as you mentioned, they've got teams of, of people now whose only job during the campaign is to find out what they can about the other candidates and, and try to define that candidate or that party.
3: Yeah, well, I mean, an election, well, this one is, what, about 40 days? and yeah. So that's, uh, that's kind of... Uh, As these parties think about these things as scripts, in some ways that's 40 lines in a script. And so if you manage to get three or four uh, of these candidates, uh, suddenly, you know, a party's working with a shorter script. They've lost three of their lines or four of their lines. And, you know, each of those lines, uh, in a way, is also a half a million dollars each day these parties are spending trying to get, like, one line or one idea uh, through uh, in the media coverage and and into our uh, impression of what that party is and what it plans to do. And so, yeah, the parties really uh, have an impatience with this because they don't want to lose that capacity. And clearly then for the the other parties, they want to throw the other parties off and prevent them from getting their message out. But in the long run, uh, it probably doesn't improve the quality of our ability to make collective decisions. And... uh, uh, in some ways maybe prevents us from re-enunciating really yeah, the higher principles about what we don't want uh, in our politics.
0: It's got to be frustrating, I would think, for the party leaders, though, isn't it, Peter? Because, as you say, in a 40-day campaign like this, I mean, you want to stay on message. You, you wanna, if you're going to Waterloo or to Hamilton or to Windsor, I mean, you've got a, a prepared speech, and this is what we're going to do, or this is the announcement we're going to make. Uh, you don't want to waste time playing defense, trying to defend or, or try to explain away something like this.
3: Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I think it was maybe uh, the plan to, was to repeal the carbon tax. Was the uh, the statement that Mr. Shear wanted to make on Saturday in in Ottawa? And suddenly, <laughs> the story was: look at this candidate running into her car, claiming she had to go canvass <laughs> rather than answer her questions. So, uh, yeah, I mean, that's that's a loss of that capacity to 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 make a big point. Uh, and to connect with Canadians, on uh, an important part of policy, point of policy, at least from the point of view of the Conservative campaign.
0: When these things come to the to the forefront, like they have this past weekend, does it really have an impact on voters, or is it really just uh, if you didn't like that party or that candidate, well, you like them li- even less now? Is, is it actually strong enough? Uh, is our moral compass maybe strong enough to say, oh, I can't defend, uh, that, I can't, I can't tolerate that, I can't vote for that party or that that candidate now because of what I've just learned?
3: Well, I think at the level of the individual candidate, it probably does enter into a number of people's calculus, right? Uh, You know, you may be a conservative-minded voter, but mm, maybe I don't want to vote for someone who, you know, holds very strange views about (laughs) my fellow citizens. Uh, You know, so, I mean, uh, I think it it does play a bit in in the decisions at the local level. At the national level, uh, I think parties uh, maybe two elections ago were really scared that it would lead to a negative impression that they weren't serious and competent that they would let people such as, you know, whatever, you know, who would, would hold those views or, you know, have past problems with domestic abuse and so on, to have them uh, run was a bad sign on the party. I think now that it seems to be most of the parties uh, having these problems, uh, that's that's a bit reduced. Um, but it certainly is a case that if you do see a bunch of candidates who have a similar profile of problems emerge, then people may begin to ask questions. Well, you know, do I do I really want to support that? Uh, You know, the counterpoint to that is in the last Alberta election, the NDP seemed to have a story a day pretty much about Mm -hmm. United Conservative Party candidates. And at a certain point, Jason Kenney said, well, I'm not asking them to step down anymore, except in the most egregious cases. Uh, It didn't seem, you know, at a certain point, uh, I think the NDP began to be seen as a party that was slinging mud. Um, And so, uh, and certainly it didn't, seem to discourage a lot of people from voting for the Conservative Party in, in Alberta. So, yeah, maybe, you know, the impact is still a bit limited. Uh, people care about that, but they maybe also care about the programs of the parties more.
0: And, and I mean, even if it doesn't move them to say, okay, I was going to vote for that party, now I'm going to vote for this one, they, even if that doesn't happen, they may, as an alternative, just say, well, I'm not voting at all then, I just forget it because I can't do that, and that's just as harmful to that candidate in that party.
3: That's true. I mean, uh, certainly, you know, negative uh, campaigning has been shown to uh, reduce turnout. You know, the point is less to make people switch parties or, you know, no, long, no longer support their party, but just not be excited enough uh, to go out and vote because, you know, that, that party's been dragged through the mud or has been shown to be lacking in, in whatever ways. I'm not sure if it plays quite as much at the level of candidates again. It might have, it might for, you know, your local candidate where you, you are like, well, I'm, I'm for this party and my local candidate's terrible, so I'll just stay home. Um, but I think for the most part, it's more at the level of messages about parties and what they stand for that the negative would have a bigger impact.
0: Uh, it's a crazy time when elections are called and the, uh, the activities of the clients and everything else. It's always great to get your perspective and add some clarity to this, Peter. Thanks so much for this today. You're welcome. Peter Grafe, uh, political science professor at McMaster University. The
2: Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on
0: 900 CHML.